This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Hello and welcome to the Passive Real Estate Podcast. I'm Matt Jones and today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Matthew Owens. Matthew is a CPA and owner of OCG Properties. He has a BA in economics with an emphasis in accounting from UC Santa Barbara. He has bought, renovated, and sold or held over a thousand single-family properties. Currently, he's buying five or more single-family rental properties per month. He acquires and operates value-add multifamily properties. He's also a private lender with over $35 million lent in multiple markets across the United States. He has raised over $150 million in private investors' capital, and he currently owns over 1,450 units in multiple markets across the United States. He has a a property management with uh, over 15 years of experience with syndicated investments, well, uh, with performing and non-performing notes, single-family, multifamily properties, flipping and holding, private lending, taxation, and auditing. Well, welcome, Matthew. Uh, Great to have you. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about yourself? Uh, you know, I, I love investing in the passive syndication side of things. I am an active and a passive investor. As uh, as you mentioned, I have a private lending business where we help fix and flip investors, uh, borrow capital to be able to fix and flip. And then we also have a six-month real estate course, a CFO services company. So it's all a matter of those multiple income streams. Uh, I don't think I like anything more than to not be active anymore after flipping over a thousand houses and invest in passive syndication deals. Uh, you find the headaches and the trials and tribulations that go with uh, being an active investor, of course, when you deal with that many flips. So uh, it's I, I know a thousand ways of losing money on a house now, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So how'd you get started with real estate investing? Um, So I was actually working at a CPA firm doing tax and audit and, of course, wanting to bang my head against the computer because that is no fun at all. Uh, And, you know, doing the audit side and the tax side, it's a lot of work, of course, and uh, really just wanting to find a way out into real estate and realized, hey, you know, is, is there, there's another way to make money. I took some real estate courses and I went in 2006 I quit my CPA firm job to go into real estate. So I was a real estate genius for about a year and a half before (laughs) uh, I'll say I got my ass handed to me and punched in the face really hard by the real estate crash that occurred in 2008. Uh, And it honestly was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me, though, because it taught me how to get back up and how to let those hits kind of like flow off your shoulder and you know, get get away from you when uh, you need to take those emotional hits and those those hits and earn your war wounds, I'll say, in, in this business. And uh, being able to do that early and being able to change my mindset into a more, uh, I'd say, solution, res- a solution mindset instead of being, you know, hunkered down by the pain of those instances, uh, looking, keeping my head up and being able to make money in different ways and focus on how to make more money back. Uh, was the key. I ended up taking 200 grand out of my credit cards at the time to pay my investors back and took the hit for them, which was, you know, probably one of the hardest things you learn to do is taking those hits. And uh, all those investors reinvested with me afterwards. And I was able to uh, start doing deals with a lot of them again, right after the crash, because they saw what I did for them uh, and realized that, wow, even though the crash occurred, 
I still didn't let them lose their money and was able to find ways of helping them make more money uh, in a bunch of different ways. And I started doing joint ventures with them on fix and flipping deals and started utilizing their capital for promissory notes. And I called it the Bay the Bank program at that time, you know, so it worked out pretty well. So, yeah, but it was a, a wild ride right in the beginning. Uh, I remember thinking in my head that I'm going to quit my job and I'll have all this free time and uh, and I'll have time to go to the gym and all this stuff. And nothing can be further from the truth. You're working 14 hour days in the beginning to get that stuff going for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, what I'm hearing is, you know, high integrity, you're paying your investors first, even if you have to take out credit card loans to make that happen. And uh, you're right about the, the time leading up to the last crash. Uh, you know, everybody was looking like geniuses then. Just like past few years, so many people have been just doing a banging job because, you know, the prices have been on going up. And so everybody looks like they're smart. But I, I do suspect we might have some uh, market correction here. I don't know what exactly that'll look like. Probably not 2008, if I had to guess. But uh, mm -hmm. there'll be some people caught with their pants down, I imagine. Uh, what are you doing to help prepare things so your investors uh, aren't going to have a rough time of it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think it comes down to understanding, one, how to run a business. You know, when it, whenever there's market volatility, you're going to see the businesses fail that don't have the right businesses system set up. They don't have the right infrastructure. They don't have the right capital connections. They haven't done the right homework up front on these. And I guess since I started when I when I you know took that hit initially, I never wanted to take that hit again. So it comes down to the right risk mitigation. So, like, for example, in my fund, we have zero debt in our fund. It's 100 percent, you know, equity. And so I don't utilize a lot of debt in these instances because of that market volatility. You know, we're going to see a lot of multifamilies uh, coming up uh, that people bought wrong. They bought it in inverted cap rates uh, in different ways. And now you're seeing, you know, some, you know, problems with their refinances and problems with them needing to bring more capital to the table to get those refinances done. And if they're bringing more capital to the table, a lot of times their return on investment is a lot worse and it's not really possible or they're not able to raise that additional capital. And you'll see some stuff going back to the banks. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to pick up properties from those types of operators that bought, you know, recently the before the changes in interest rates occurred before they bumped up, you know, 2% full points and 3% full percentage rates, uh, you know, up. Uh, and now the banks are being more conservative. They're already requiring more money down. And, you know, so what I'm doing is I go through and I've mitigated risk across the board in my entire portfolio where I use a lot less leverage I make sure that if I'm buying property, if I'm buying on the single family home side, I'm making sure it cash flows a little bit extra. Same thing when I'm investing in uh, multifamilies now on the syndication side, or if I'm investing in mobile home parks or self-storage or these different asset classes, I'm looking at the due diligence of the operator and those financial models you know, being a CPA, I love the financial model side of things, of course. And, you know, I'm diving deep into those financial models to say, hey, what assumptions have you utilized? What happens if rents drop by 20% because people can't afford it anymore, right? What happens when rates are up even further than they are right now upon refinance? Have you built in those metrics into your refinance guidelines? Have you built in your 
you know, refinance equity where, you know, you're being more conservative on your refinance equity than what you think you might be able to obtain from the lender at that time because of changes in the market or just fear from the lenders because you're seeing that across the board right now, just fear from lenders, you know, all over the place. So these are the things that I'm really looking at from a risk mitigation standpoint, lower leverage, having good operators with good financial assumptions, understanding what their risk mitigation mindset looks like when you're investing with operators. That's kind of the key to the tool chest right there uh, when you're investing with other people or investing in your own deals if you're an active operator yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in 2006, people were buying properties with uh, you know 100% leverage or, or more sometimes. Uh, and right, obviously you're right. not doing that now, but what sort of leverage are you looking at to, for it to make sense with properties? So, you know, on the single family home side, you can go through and get, you know, up to six, up to 75 to 80% loan to value. I might be at a 70% loan to value type type loan now instead to make sure that those individual assets are cash flowing better and can weather the storm, right? Uh, on the multifamily side of things, I think 65% is a good a good basis to 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 track as far as the after repaired value instead of pre instead of 70 75 that a lot of people were getting into and just being really careful on that back end side on the debt side um, because we're seeing it all across the board with different lenders changing things up all the time and you know we're we're not seeing inflation be tamed at all in different ways and so of course lenders you know the rates might raise further and so lenders are afraid of that right now you know you're looking at agency debt and you know other debt out there that has you know numbers across the board and i think that debt piece is the biggest the biggest risk of the market as a whole because if you're at a five cap the debt doesn't do anything for you if it's at six or six and a half you know percent rates you're just getting decimated right there. It's really hurting your cash on cash return for investors and makes it very difficult for you to raise additional capital. It almost makes sense just to go all equity and raise more money, you know, in a situation like that, right? Uh, but really it comes down to that value add play too, right? Making sure that are they going to be able to implement the value adds on the on the back ends of the of these of these deals? Are they going to be able to hit their renovation budgets with the inflation being out of control on you know labor and materials associated with the renovations? So all of these different risk factors I see out there, not just the lending side, but I think being more conservative in the sixty five percent range, uh, or even you know pretending like on your refinance you're going to get a sixty percent leverage on your after repaired market value is is key, uh, and making sure that no matter what you're you have a really strong cash flow and final cap rate to cost of your project so that that way, if, if you're at a 7% plus cap rate on your cost structure uh, after you've done your value add, you're in a much safer position to even be able to raise 100% equity on a project like that. Maybe I'm not on a massive deal. It doesn't still doesn't make sense, right? Um, but making sure that you're in a good place there, I think, is key uh, from that leveraged position. Real estate is all about adding value to other people. An easy way to do that is to share this podcast with someone you know who wants to do more passive real estate investing. Also, subscribe and leave a review. Now, let's get back to the episode. Uh, this fund that you have, you know, are you currently accepting new investors for it? 
Um, so yes, but obviously I have to know them for a period of time first. I don't actively market my my funds. Uh, it's all private based uh, across the board. So I'm uh, looking at starting another fund on a single family and short term rental fund, as well as uh, a marijuana fund, uh, as well as some other funds actively. And then passively, I invest in a lot of different operations uh, from ATM machines and car washes and uh, the uh, multifamily self-storage mobile home parks, uh, all of these types of different deals that are high cash flow operations. I'm looking at a lot of alternative assets in addition to the traditional stuff because I think there's probably going to be a lot more distress, especially in the multifamily arena. If I am investing in multifamily right now, I'm really looking deep into the operator. Have they gone through a downturn in the past? What is that financial assumptions? What is their value add play? So like, for example, one of the ones that I've invested in recently, they not only have an increase in uh, rental value by increasing value on the rents right there, but also the reduction of expenses uh, and tax credit type structures where they're immediately getting a, a value bump by doing tax mitigation structures on um, property taxes. I'm also looking for companies that are doing cost segregation studies to add additional value. Because if I go put in $100,000 into a deal and I go get $100,000 or an $80,000 immediate year one tax deduction that equates to 30% tax savings, I look at that as my initial basis being less on that overall deal as a whole and my return being a lot higher because I'm my basis is lower and I'm getting a big chunk of my money back on taxes. So, you know, looking at these different additional value plays, additional ways to add value to an investment, I think is key in this type of environment when it's hard to find, you know, good deals. There are still in a weird market where sellers have not gone through and lowered prices to, to you know, compensate for those interest rate adjustments and buyers just are not willing to pay that much right now because of the rate changes, the numbers don't pencil. And so you're in this weird spot where unless it's got some major value play, the sellers aren't selling and the buyers aren't buying. And so you have a very dysfunctional market at the moment until you have enough distress on the sellers to where they can't refinance, they can't raise that debt, or, or their numbers are just not working on their side, then you're going to see a lot more changes and a lot more people just liquidating. And, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of LPs and GPs losing their capital because they made the wrong decisions early on and bought wrong uh, at the top of the cycle. Yeah. And, and with these lower interest rates, yeah, a lot of people are going to be surprised uh, when they try to uh, go to refinance. So right. I think you had a great point earlier. The uh, The syndication sponsor, the operator really matters more in my mind than the deal itself, you know, because they're mm -hmm. going to make it work or not work. And uh, how do you find and vet good operators? So for I, I have a 200 point due diligence checklist that I do on every single deal. Uh, and if people want that, they can email me afterwards and I can, you know, get them that that due diligence checklist. Uh, but at the end of the day, what, what you do is it's all a matter of networking, right? Being around all the right people that are already investing in syndications that you can have deal flow access and operator access, right? That's the first point of getting in front of as many operators as possible. And there's a lot of bad operators out there that do not know what they're doing. And then there's a lot of capital raisers out there that are not the direct operators themselves that might be GPs on the deals, for example, but they may not have the in-depth knowledge 
about that deal in the first place that you really need to get into in order to know if you have a good operator in the first place. So I'm looking at their track record. I'm doing a background check. I'm understanding what their financial strength is to where if you end up in a spot where you can't refinance unless you put an extra million dollars in, can that GP do that to save their reputation uh, down the line, right? Do they have that extra million to put in or something? Because they, you know, what, what's their net worth compared to the loan amounts, compared to the deal structure as a whole to enable them to do that, right? And what are the solutions to those, those problems? And when you go out and ask them these questions, do they have answers to these solutions that what happens if this, if this occurs or this risk occurs or this risk occurs? Understanding what, if they know what their break-even points are on their deals, understanding really how conservative they are on their numbers and on their financial projections. For example, if you have an operator that's coming in and projecting rent growth at, you know, say it's 5% or 3% or something like that, but expense growth at two, you got a bad operator in my eyes because they're, they're skewing numbers to make things look a little better than they should. In my eyes, the, the, the inflation on expenses is going to go up at a faster pace than rental values, dependent, of course, on supply and demand in the market as a whole in that specific general geographical location, because every market is different. You can't just say, hey, across the board, all of it is going to be uh, very, very, there's going to be demand on rents, or there's going to be a lack of demand on rents. And you want to look at you know, which markets they're investing in, do the deep dive on the market, the demographics, the population influx, the jobs in those markets specifically. You know, we, for example, in Florida, you haven't seen any reduction in population. You haven't seen any reduction in property values because there's a massive influx of population into that state, for example. You know, in California, there was a 500,000 person reduction in population I, and, and already ridiculously low cap rates where you're looking at like four caps, right? There's going to be a change there. You know, there always is. Those are the markets that have the most volatility. So looking at what happened historically, looking at the operator in themselves in detail and saying, do they have a conservative mindset? Do they have the financial strength? Have they gone through a downturn already in the past where they know what to do when stuff hits the fan, right? When there's a problem that comes up, right? What is their their backup plan and their break-even scenarios? And do they know all of the answers to the risks that you can bring up and you see on the market as a whole? And if you are a passive, oper a passive LP investor and you're not sure about all those risks, Go ask other people with more experience than you what risks they see and then ask those operators. Come up with a massive list that you can go through with those uh, with those GPs and those operators that you can go through in detail to, to ask those questions, like the financial assumptions thing that I'm talking about, like what's happening with population, what's the break even on the deal, what have you done to mitigate risk on the refinance of your deal down the line if rates go up? What what are you putting your exit cap rates at 
right now compared to what they could be in the future and what happens if exit cap rates you know compress and you have you know issues there or get looser and you have issues there uh with selling at what your projected cap rate is right so these things tell a lot about an operator and their mindset and their ability to predict risk and also uh you know one other big factor about the operator is are they vertically integrated or are they outsourcing the you know property management and the different aspects of this because um you know and and if they are outsourcing or if they're vertically integrated what are the procedures that the management companies and the operations team on the ground that's managing these units actually do consistently from an ongoing property management procedure standpoint as well as a value add standpoint what's their game plan for doing the value add because just because they say hey they're going to renovate all these units and maybe it's a million dollar rehab or a couple million dollar rehab doesn't mean that they can necessarily perform on that you know the numbers can show you one thing the performance on that value add play and the efficiency of the property management is a whole nother thing i used to run a property management company it is not fun like i got major respect for these managers that have to deal with they're the bad guys for the tenant standpoint they're the bad guys for the owner's standpoint when they got to tell them problems and so who is the operational team not just the asset manager and gp partner but that team on the ground and and get do a deep dive into their operational procedures to know if they really know what they're doing or not because that is what's going to make or break the investment not even necessarily the asset manager piece of it it's the operations piece that's really going to take it there they could have a really bad contractor and then blow up the whole deal and you know not have any experience with that contractor and do they have backups for those contractors do they have backups for the property managers you know these are the things that i think need to be asked before you go and invest in syndications yeah absolutely and uh what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to get a copy of your 200 point checklist uh they can email me directly at mpo at ocgproperties.com okay i'll include that with the uh show notes are you ready for a speed round for sure. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? I can be passive and actually go and spend time with my my son and my daughter coach basketball and things like that. And uh, I don't have to actually go through and qualify for the financing on these deals and take additional risk on top of my investment. And I can actually go through and diversify chunks of money with different operators, different markets of, the, markets of the country and different asset classes. So that if one operator blows up on me, I'm not, you know, stressing. I'm like, hey, that was one $50,000 deal. Great, I got 20 of them. One deal blows up. I don't get my preferred return for a period of time. I'm still okay and I'm not stressing out like crazy. And I haven't had to qualify for the financing on that deal and do any of the work involved. So these are the biggest benefits I see after being an operator myself for years, right? So I, I know the pain that the operators go through. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? You know, I, I wish I knew that I didn't need all my own money for these deals, right? Because in the beginning, you limit yourself massively by your own capital and your own resources. And really, it comes down to is all the other people that you know and all the resources that they have as well. 
And so being able to go through and raise capital and, and do your own deals and things like that, it just comes down to your relationship basis. And, you know, I remember probably a few years in, I started really networking and I was going to five networking events every single week, every week, just developing resources and my business exploded. So don't think that you have to have all the deals. You don't have to have all the capital. You don't have to be the one that does all of this stuff yourself. You can go work with other people and have them help with different pieces of it and not have everything on your shoulders. So that is one of the biggest keys because a lot of people limit themselves by their own capital. Think I can't create financial freedom. I only have $100,000 or I only have a couple hundred thousand dollars. I only have $20,000 or nothing. You don't need that. You can always go add value in a bunch of different ways and get pieces of the deal instead of taking the whole thing down yourself. Yep, I agree. Uh, you know, these are lessons yeah. that it took me years to learn. Oh, I hear you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's a book you can recommend to passive real estate investors? You know, I, I from a from a passive perspective, it's difficult, right? I think I think obviously what got me quitting my CPA firm job was Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? That that job that thing made me understand the different aspects of making money from an operations standpoint and running a business standpoint and what your 10-year goals are, five-year goals are, three-year goals are. The best book I can recommend is Traction by Gino Wickman that teaches the entrepreneur operating system, but it also teaches you how to outline your vision so that you can actually go and get to your 10-year goal and breaks it down all the way down to your daily activities that you need to be doing to get to your next step, to, to get to your one-year goal, your three-year goal, your five-year goal, your 10-year goal. And that has been life-changing from a planning perspective, whether you're active or actively running a business or passive, both of those are, are massively important. Both excellent books. Uh, what's the best way for our listeners to find out more about what you have going on? Uh, they can email me at mpo at ocgproperties.com or they can go to my website, ocgproperties.com or ocgcapital.org. Okay, awesome. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? Just keep your head up. When those when those hits happen, those trials and tribulations happen, keep your head up and look for the opportunity. There's so many times in the past that I've taken hits and when you look down, you're not looking up enough to make that money back. There's always ways of making money back. Be very, very uh, understanding of your own emotion. Be aware of your own emotions to be able to you know, get through any trials and tribulations that come up because they will come up. It's a matter of being able to keep your head up because that opportunity is right there teaching you a lesson to be able to move that forward. So that's one of the biggest things I learned from, you know, multiple years of, of active real estate and taking that massive hit when I first got started. Excellent. Well, a lot of mic drop moments in today's episode. I thank you a lot, Matthew, and have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks, man. You too. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.